0: This is Coda Radio, episode 374 for September 9th, 2019. Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. Sometimes it's just all about the related technologies, but you know what? Those are important. So important, well, I'm gonna need I'm gonna need some help. I'm Wes, of course, and I'm joined by our favorite rampaging Rubyist. Mr. Michael Dominic, Welcome back to the show, Mike. Hello, Wes. How are you? Oh, wonderful. Nice to be connected with you. There's a lot going on out in the software development ecosystem that we find ourselves in, so we better get on with our show today. I'd like to start things off with like a little correction, because you know what? We're here every week live, spewing out our opinions, and oftentimes we get something wrong either just totally by mistake or, or the, the wrong word comes out. So last week... We may have implied that uh, the new macOS shell was going to be Fish. And I think we both wish that was true. I know I do, but no. Um, some very wise people gave us some feedback over at coderradio.reddit.com. And of course, as we've previously talked about and should well have known, that shell is ZSH.
1: Yes, it is a Z shell. That's my bad. I just, uh, yeah, I just love Fish shells so much. I thought my dreams were coming true.
0: Well, we can hope. And of course, if you'd like Fish on. Uh, mac os well that's easily done how do you uh, how do you usually install it is it you just is that from brew or elsewhere yeah just brew easy all right well uh, let's let's hit a few more feedback items while we're here just a quick one from juni what if Perl 6 last episode you guys got on talking about shell scripting interpreted languages repls and command line interfaces and it really just made me think more about Perl 6 It's lispier, it's got more metaprogramming and more of a focus on a REPL, and much more modern than Perl 5. After three to four years, it hasn't seen the light of day though. Would you find it useful? Like a Python alternative for shorter, but maybe more complicated scripts? Thanks for your opinion. So what about what about you, Mike? You know, I don't think we've talked much about Perl at all, besides, you know, maybe the odd joke or two that, that always ends up sneaking in.
1: I don't think we have either. And we've been doing the show a long time. I mean, yeah, Pearl is a language that has been around for a long time that I can tell you I have never used. What about, how about you, Wes?
0: Oh, no, I've used, I mean, I've used Pearl 5 far more than I'd care to. There's a lot to like about it, honestly. There's a lot of really neat things, a lot of good Lisp influence. I think it's an interesting language. It just fell into a, um, a kind of strange niche where it was used by, in very clever ways. And there's so many different ways to say things, at least in Pearl, in Pearl 5, it can be pretty hard whereas it's easy to see a python script and and pick your way through that a lot more complicated if you if you're not well acquainted with perl perl 6 though is kind of an interesting case i've not i have not actually played with it and i think that's unfortunately true of many people who'd previously used some perl 5 because it's just a very different language with the same name now obviously it's a big version change and but i don't i don't know i mean you know my proclivities for name changes but it seems like there's enough novelty in there. It's, there's interesting stuff. It deserves consideration, probably, at least as much as any random language does, and hasn't really seen that just because it's not exciting, doesn't seem different enough, maybe, or people just aren't interested because it's still got that Pearl nomiker And it's tough
1: today, too, because I, I feel like we're coming out with, like, five languages a week now.
0: Yes, and many of them have big corporate backing, right? So this is kind of more of a old-school, open-source-style language. And as we've seen less and less sort of, you know, like, sysadmin stuff, people writing these quick little shell scripts, not in in like a bigger language. Well, it's it's a different time. That it is. Here's something for you, Mike. Actually something something for me too, of course. And that's some feedback from our friend Nuclear Nick, who's writing to us about Pry. In a previous episode, I was amazed to hear that Mike had never used pry before. It's one of the first things I show off to people when introducing them to Ruby. And then you guys can go find it in the show notes. He's got a great little example of how you can just use things like CD and LS and all the little affordances that are available in Pry, just to make it a little bit easier as you're exploring and trying to new, learn a new language. So what do you think, Mike? Is do you want to give it a try? I mean, just a gem install away.
1: Yeah, I, I actually have to give that a give that a shot. He's absolutely correct. I have not used it. Um... I still have not used it, but you know what? I'll make it my homework for this week to give Pry a look.
0: And if not, I'm sure more people will write in, and we'll just have to keep shaming you right here on the show.
1: Listen, just uh, just like uh, Game of Thrones, just go shame, shame. You'll get there eventually.
0: All right, well, here's something that I'm curious about your input on. That's our last little feedback item today from Justin, and he writes to us about learning web development. Hey, guys, I'm currently a senior at Purdue, studying cybersecurity and web development. I'm in a weird place, though, because with web development, I didn't, I didn't start in this major. I've, I've just sort of jumped in now as a senior, and I don't have the past three years of classes and background. Instead, I learned all about IT and systems administration. Want a Ubuntu box set up as a Kubernetes master with 20 nodes and your services configured, load-balanced, and automatically backed up? Say no more. I got that. But want a three-page responsive website about your dog built with bootstrap? That, uh, that I can't do. I feel woefully unready, and I was wondering if either of you had suggestions for structured content around web dev design, things I could use to augment my learning. Thanks a bunch.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question, and every once in a while we get a form of this question. I have to say, if you have this IT background, um, this IT administration, it's kind of DevOpsy background, that's that's great, right? But everybody's looking for the you know that guy who can do web dev plus DevOps. In terms of structured courses, there's obviously the Linux Academy stuff. It is a little more on that IT administration pathway. I think that's a fair uh, characterization.
0: Mm-hmm. At least most of the content.
1: Yeah. And I used to recommend, when we got this question years ago, uh, Code School. Uh, they had a, particularly for front end web development, uh, they had a really good, I think they called it like Pathways of JavaScript. Unfortunately, when they got purchased by Plural Site, they actually kind of shut down most of that style of content which was interesting. Uh, Um, I don't know of a structured class or format that I would recommend. Now there's obviously code Academy. Um, there's camps, but then you have to pay and you're, you know, you're just getting out of school. I would maybe look at code Academy. Um, in fact, if you do, I would encourage you to write back in unless Wes has like the, the silver bullet.
0: No, you know, unfortunately I don't. Um, and it can be one of those frustrating things, especially in web development where it moves so fast, right? Like, there's plenty of outdated CSS and JavaScript tutorials out there, but that's probably not what you want. And it's especially difficult when you're new and don't know how to filter what's good or old or outdated information just to find the, the best sources. So, unfortunately, no, I don't have a super solid solid answer, but maybe our community can help. If you have any favorite web development courses, well, please do let us know and we'll pass it along. coder.show slash contact. I do like your point there, Mike, though. You know, having that IT background, that, that is going to be a huge plus. And you're probably just going to have to struggle through some things, um, keep playing with the web tech, and eventually you'll have enough of it under your belt that the rest will start to come easier.
1: To your point, too, this front-end, particularly like the front-end javascript framework stuff, is so, like, so aggressive with how quickly they're moving. I would rather be starting from, from his position of knowing... Um, IT administration and DevOps, at, at least to a point of someone who you know studied in school. Because you're going to be relearning web technologies. Like, our, our story coming up about TypeScript, right?
0: Yes, exactly. That's key. You're going to have to relearn. It sounds like you're already, you've already got some good skills about learning to learn, right? Being able to learn. So pick some stuff. You know, maybe find... If you can find some good tutorials, I would worry maybe a little bit less at, the, at just right now about, you know, if it's exactly the best stack or tech. And once you've kind of got all the, the fundamentals done, you've done it once... Makes it a lot easier to jump ship. Speaking of TypeScript, nothing too deep here, but I, I just saw an interesting GitHub issue filed by Google. And I think this is kind of a fun case study of two giant organizations collaborating on open source and, you know, working together out in the open. So this is a Google feedback on TypeScript 3.5. We recently upgraded Google to use TypeScript 3.5, and here, here's some feedback. Now, for background, they write, recall that Google is a monorepo of billions of lines of code. We use a single version of TypeScript and a single set of compiler flags across all teams and upgrade these simultaneously for everyone. So, oof. Nightmare land. That's a big undertaking already. Yeah. So we know and expect every TypeScript upgrade to involve some work. And, you know, honestly, improvements to the standard library are expected and welcomed by us, even though they often mean removing similar but incompatible things we have in our own code. However, TypeScript 3.5 was a lot more work for us than other recent upgrades. There were three main changes in 3.5 that made it especially painful, and we believe most of these changes were intentional and intended to improve type checking, but we also believe the TypeScript team understands that type checking is always just a trade-off between safety and ergonomics, which that's just an interesting observation that doesn't always get made. So if you're interested, if you're a TypeScript user, I definitely recommend kind of just checking this out. It's interesting as a Insight into, you know, how Google used this tech and just some of the back and forth between people from both organizations, you know, operating politely, nicely, productively. There's just a lot of, like, polite language here that you wouldn't even have to be necessarily this, phrase it this way. But, you know, here's a, there's a breaking change and they write, historically, when TypeScript has introduced type system changes like this, they were behind a flag. Suggestion, using a flag here, would have allowed us to adapt to this change separately from the other breaking changes in 3.5. So there's no, you know, it's not like a bunch of blame, it's not being upset, it's all just very well articulated.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is really the full-on open source stream here, right? And also, what happened to Dart? Oh boy, that's an interesting question. That jumped right out at me when when you put this one on the dock. I was like,
0: huh, (laughs) must suck to be on the Dart team. I mean, there's so much going on in that space, and obviously... Google is a giant organization with lots of projects underway. Well,
1: we, we should give the TypeScript team credit, right? Uh, they have, of all the let's co- say pseudo JavaScripty languages, CoffeeScript, Dart, TypeScript. We could keep going, but why? I think TypeScript has. I I'd want to say it's become the standard. If you're not using straight JavaScript, but I think it's, I, I wonder how you what you're seeing, but what I'm seeing when I'm looking at like people who are looking to employ people, people looking for contractors to do work, uh, people looking to hire dev shops, if, it, if it's a front-end job, and if they're not just like saying, hey, we need a you know web job done, they're asking for TypeScript specifically.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think it's uh, um, becoming especially popular in the cases kind of that it was designed for, right? And that's big, large organizations, people like Microsoft and Google, who have a lot of engineers working on lots of projects and find that you know some of the additional structure and compile time checking provided by TypeScript is really helpful. Google's employee here says, I'd like to emphasize that we are very happy with TypeScript in general, and they're just hopeful that the feedback helps make it better. But you're right. I mean, TypeScript has become, uh, maybe not quite de facto, but something pretty close.
1: And uh, and now with RMS talking at Microsoft and Google and uh, Microsoft collaborating on GitHub together, I think we have entered the kumbaya hippie age
0: well, we can we can only hope, you know, hey open source benefits everyone.
1: that's right. Keep it free unless, of course, you're on the app
0: store. Boom. you pointed us um this week to some interesting stories actually coming out of multiple outlets, highlighting something you've been talking about on the show for literally years, Mike. And that's how apple what Apple does with competitor apps. Apple
1: does something what they call sherlocking, which has nothing to do with Benedict Cumberbatch or 21B Baker Street, and has everything to do with an app that was called Sherlock, where they simply uh, implemented its functionality in an old version. I think it was like macOS Higer? Or was it?
0: Right, okay, so Sherlock was a was a third-party app that you could use to go find stuff on your file system, right? Or integrate with apps and stuff.
1: Yeah, like Spotlight, if you're a Mac user, right? Right. And they've continued to do this. They've kind of always done this, even back in like the macOS 9 days. It's one of these topics that I wanted to put in the show out of pure spite, because for years you would get feedback uh, back in the battle days when it was just Chris and I before you joined us with your radiance.
0: <laughs> I interloped, you know.
1: No, you were like an angel descending. I want everybody to know that Wes is angelic. You have to, you have to be divine to be able to understand closure.
0: <laughs> I don't know about that, but I appreciate the compliment.
1: Yeah, so Apple is, like, hyper-aggressive at basically – and I'm not going to do the whole lecture I used to – but commoditizing their compliments, right? Basically, there's a set amount of value per user that is available per iPhone. Apple makes sure they get the most of it. They aggressively drive down software prices. Um, And if there is an app that is effectively a de facto standard – for ios or even mac os they will just eventually implement that as part of the os now you could argue well that's a better user experience maybe it is maybe it isn't but they have not been shy about just putting people out of business and giving that ios particularly for you know all those years of mobile was really the only platform that made any money for independent developers
0: right i mean for a long time there had been that had kind of been the success story right here is the platform you can target And because in part of some of the things Apple has done to to make it that way, it was a profitable marketplace, at least for a time. I think
1: the best case is not Apple straight up Sherlocking your app, which does happen, but that has been happening less and less. Um, But how about like if you're Spotify and they just make it, you know, financially disadvantageous and technically disadvantageous for users to use you as their preferred service over Apple's competitive service? This is going to be a huge deal as we go into more and more automated voice technologies where you don't have just like, you know, where it's like, you know, Miss um, Miss a. hope I'm trying not to trigger people's echoes, Um, you know, Miss echo, echo, do this, or, hey, so and so do that. The platform vendor gets to pick what software is actually run.
0: Right. There's very important defaults there.
1: Right. And they can make it like you they can allow third parties where like I think you can do, hey, so and so play something on Spotify, but that's garbage. Right. That's that's not nearly as good. There's no way just to just set it to Spotify. Um so I I think this is an important story, and I definitely want to get your perspective. But I, I my only criticism of kind of the pieces we have here is that they focus a little bit, particularly the Washington Post one, a little bit too much on straight up Sherlocking, which is terrible, but is something that is happening less and less. And they really should focus more on the platform vendor giving its applications an unfair advantage, um, and that could be anything from not charging themselves thirty percent to
0: being able to use. Um, Private APIs. Right, that's a big one. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, there's another piece we'll have linked in the show notes from, from the Times, and they talk a lot more about some of the, the search algorithm and what's going on there, how, how changes get made, and basically, you know, the impact of the small team that makes the decisions of how that algorithm works and point out some things that have changed. You know, like, way back when in 2018, if you searched podcast, say, and then you'd have to wade through, like, 14 Apple apps before you even found the first... Non Apple app. Now that we should know that's that's no longer the case, but it just goes to show there's a there's a lot of power there.
1: Yeah, I mean, and the other thing I think we we both kind of forgot. It's not just search, right? It's also App Store editorial. If they decide to feature you, one running story we had for a long time was we used to track ex Apple employees going independent and that what per, like how quickly they became featured, even if their apps were kind of you know didn't do much. Um, that is like. And I'll dig it out, but from 2015, there was a pretty clear analysis. I think Marco Arment, but I could be wrong, so don't hold me to that, did that of when his app was featured and when it wasn't, and just the dramatic difference in revenue. So it is it is a hugely, um, hugely controlled uh, ecosystem to work in as an independent business. And I, well, if that, that is something that I think just needs to be looked at, particularly the Again, like the Spotify-like cases.
0: Yeah, and it is interesting, Like you don't, doesn't, there's not a lot of communication either, right? So you may be working on some, some app that you think will be really successful and fills a hole in the ecosystem and Apple might come out a month after you launch it and they have their better built-in platform version.
1: Yeah, but again, right, communication is another great point. Depending on who you are, and I myself had this experience where I had clients who were very much favored because they were bigger companies and Apple wanted their apps in the store, you could actually get quite a bit of handholding and like you were allowed to kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, bounce ideas. Will this be acceptable? This not. But if you're just an indie, you're, you know, you, you're a lamb amongst wolves, basically.
0: Right. No feedback, no responses, and uh, just submit it and find out. Follow the process, Mike.
1: Exactly. Yep.
0: Well, that's disappointing. I know we've seen lots of other complaints. You know, there's similar platform problems like uh, in other industries, for example, Amazon, right? They're they've been There's been complaints of similar behavior where they're able to use all the access and data and behind the scenes knowledge they have and launch their own products to compete with whatever is successful on their existing marketplace. And more and more, we see that, you know, this default, this platform effect, I think it's just going to be a continued problem as we shift ever more of the things that we consume to various, various platforms running online.
1: So Wes, making you King for a day, cause I'm actually curious what you think we're coming to this from more of a like Linux Fosse perspective. Do you think it should just like, should we put on our Elizabeth Warren hat and say, if you are the platform vendor, right? If you run the app store, Maybe you're just not
0: allowed to have your own apps. I guess that's always the question. It's like, where do you put the boundary though? Because like, what's an app and what's part of the base OS?
1: You're so smart. I was going to trap you.
0: (laughs) Would you mandate that like, there's something relevant between how you ship that, right? And there's doesn't compete in the same way because it wouldn't show up in the app store.
1: So basically like Microsoft saying Internet Explorer is part of Windows in 1990, whatever, 1999.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. And there's going to be a bunch of problems there too. Well, how about
1: like the mail apps and the built-in apps on the iOS are never actually deleted, even if you delete them. There are some questions, but that's a great point. And like Siri is part of the operating system, so would this apply to Siri's um, uh, Siri skills? I think is the correct word for the API these days. And what about something like an Alexa? Mm. mm.
0: You know, it is it is tricky. There's not a lot of clear answers here, unfortunately.
1: And I realize I just triggered like everybody's devices. Sorry.
0: Whoopsie. So I don't know. Um, I don't know that what what's happening now is what we want, but I. It's it's hard to say exactly what the best way to change this would be. Maybe there would be ways to have some degree of separation, not necessarily like a, a hard ban, um, but ways to make it so that those apps had to follow more of the same standards. But I don't I don't know how you would impose that in a reasonable way either, and that's a whole other question.
1: Yeah. So speaking of things that are going to be painful.
0: <laughs> oh, I don't know about that, Mike.
1: Really? Because I have a feeling we have quite a few Python two developers in the audience.
0: We probably do, and they've probably seen this post uh, over on python.org. It's all about sunsetting Python 2. News is in, we have decided that January 1st, 2020 will be the day that we sunset Python 2. That means that we will not improve it anymore after that day, even if someone finds a security problem. You should upgrade to Python 3 as soon as you can, Mike. Not a problem. I'm already on Python 3. Yeah, right. If If you're studying today... Just stay away from Python two. Just don't, you know, don't touch it. Stick with Python three. You'll be way happier. It's it's better. It's getting support. It's getting feature improvements, and honestly, has become a pretty nice language.
1: Yeah, it is actually pretty nice to work. And I mean, it, it lacks the elegance and grace of Ruby, but other than that, it's fine.
0: You know, it's um, it's not a tool for someone as sophisticated as you, Mike. It's uh, it's a tool for us commoners, the rest of us out there.
1: Well, oh, right, like when you write Python, you don't weep at the beauty of your
0: code. No, I'm too busy getting stuff done. Oh, ho, 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 ho. I see what you did there.
1: No, so I know you're deeper in the in the Pythonista land than I am. Is this like, I feel like Python 2 has been on its last leg for a very long time.
0: Yeah, well, okay, so I, I like their rationale here. Why are we doing this? We need to sunset Python 2 so we can help Python users. All right, I mean, that's a. I like the sounds of that. We released Python 2 in 2000, the year 2000. We realized a few years later that we needed to make big changes to improve Python. So in 2006, we started Python 3. Many people, read most, did not upgrade, and we did not want to hurt them. So for many years, we've kept improving and publishing both Python 2 and Python 3. But this makes it hard to improve Python. There are improvements Python 2 can't handle. And we have less time to work on making Python 3 better and faster. And honestly, yeah, I think this kind of just needed to happen. It's It's been one of those transitions. It's been going on for so long, right? I mean, at this point, over a decade. And for a long time, it felt like it just wasn't going to happen, you know? Like, none of the big um, the big tech giants were really using Python 3. It didn't feel like if you were a contractor or like, coming into an org, you could really go to Python 3 unless you were willing to personally go spend the hours to convert their code base and there just weren't weren't that many big success stories i think a lot of that's changed though
1: okay so has it changed because and this is me straight up asking i'm actually don't know the answer is it changed because most new platforms and new organizations are just starting with python 3 or is it changing because there's been methodologies around migrating
0: I think there's a lot. Yeah, you have seen more more big players make the good calls and take on that technical debt and actually push forward. And so that's meant they've had hours of their own engineers that they can help if they do use open source projects. Some of them have then contributed as well as the communities move too. So more and more of the big popular libraries that people need are either compatible with both or in some cases only Python 3 now. I think also some of the you know the conversion code has gotten a little bit smoother over the years, so there's a nice two to three sort of script out there in the library that you can use to help ease the transition. And you've just at this point, um, you have enough people out there using it. I guess I don't know when when that tipped or how you judge. I'm and there's still a lot of holdouts, right? There's still popular li- libraries that maybe haven't haven't made the jump yet. I'm curious how it plays. You know what part it plays in the larger Python resurgence we've seen as well because you know there's a time kind of like it was thought of as along with ruby they both had their popular web frameworks in that space and sure it was doing lots of lots of math and sciencey stuff but that was all kind of blocked away in you know little research labs or universities somewhere but these days python's huge
1: the python is now an anaconda
0: (laughs) yeah i think it is the other thing you've seen a lot of um just at the same time is more python type checking right so you've I think that kind of goes hand in hand more big organizations are realizing people like Dropbox say that all right well we've we've committed ourselves to using this library where we've got a lot of code in it, and we're we're having problems so um Dropbox just put out a great sort of summary of their journey to type checking four million lines of python they're They're obviously a big user, and as they say, the dynamic typing in Python made code needlessly hard to understand and started to seriously impact productivity. So they've started using MyPy. And it's a it's a fascinating post because it kind of it tells the story from when they just started using it as sort of a research project internally. But now they write, like, present day, type checking and type hinting is a normal thing for numerous developers, not only within Dropbox, but just in the wider Python community. So in some senses, it almost strikes me as what's been happening to the JavaScript community, where you had this old language, felt stagnant, and you just get enough developer mass, developer time, interest, community building, and you can modernize and change things and get people to actually adopt it. I think it does help, too, that really they're not, Python 3 and 2 aren't, like, super different, you know? You get a, you get a print function and print of a, instead of a print statement, and then most of the rest of the other stuff is just pretty much straight-up improvements. I don't know, it's just interesting. I just remember for years reading comments like, Python 2 to 3 is an example of a transition done very poorly that you shouldn't do.
1: Yeah, that was my impression that like they were effectively different languages at this point. Because like, my Python experience has been, can't say entirely in three, but, you know, beyond just like little scripts that I inherited on like two projects. Um, when I'm talking about like writing full-scale applications in Python, it's it's only been three. It's curious to me how long this took, if that makes sense, right? Like I, someone in the chat room mentioned it's because like there's Oracle dependencies if you're an Oracle shop. That seems weird though, because wouldn't Oracle just like also want to upgrade or am I missing some key like technical issue between two and three or
0: well I mean there's always just technical debt too right you got to be willing to spend the the time and therefore money to convert it so it's the business yeah it's yeah, exactly it's the it's the business the art is clear right you just you just got to move right on
1: just do the work right okay
0: so speaking of things that aren't business
1: hey do you want to play some Final Fantasy 7 using the .NET runtime
0: Yeah. Yeah, I do. Of course I do. You know I like .NET, Mike.
1: Well, then do I have the GitHub for you. The Project PSX, X is Xena, is an experimental C-Sharp emulator.
0: You mean it's a C-Sharp PlayStation emulator? That's crazy. That's crazy.
1: Yes, because emulating C-Sharp would be weird. Yes.
0: No, I like that, though. Um, Wow. This um, this actually looks pretty cool. It's new. It's pure C-Sharp, so that's kind of handy if you're interested in kind of seeing how that might be done.
1: I, mean, I don't know, a little bit of F-sharp could have gotten in there if you ask me, but, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you got to get the core stuff written in C-sharp, right? And then maybe you orchestrate it later with F-sharp above.
1: Could be, could be.
0: This is a sign
1: that someone had a lot of time on his hands.
0: Honestly, I love these little projects, though, because there's there's such, um, especially with, like, games, you know, you have, you have the technical, the pure technical side of having to make the, you know, make the runtime, implement everything, get it all working. But hand-in-hand with that, it's almost like archaeology, you know, because... All these consoles did things differently, sort of bespoke custom targets and hardware and architecture choices. so you also got to go you know figure out what they did, work backwards, and then try to implement something that acts the same way so that the game actually works
1: yeah and it's it's particularly uh video game emulators because i i I didn't get to dig into this one yet, but i'm I'm definitely going to just out of morbid curiosity. Um, there was a story we did a couple years back about a Game Boy Color emulator, Wes. And the guys working on the emulator found the ridiculous amount of hacks that the Nintendo programmers had to do just to get a Game Boy that ran in color. Like, there is some crazy stuff going on, particularly in this, uh, you know, in that, like, SNES, PS1 kind of generation of video game console. Because remember, they were not working with very robust systems.
0: No, not at all. You know, one of my favorite um, blogs is the the people behind the the Dolphin GameCube emulator. Oh yeah, oh yeah, they do such good work over there. And yeah, it's the same sort of stuff. You find out the the fascinating, crazy details. Like I believe the GameCube uh, didn't didn't have like a floating point stuff, so the, all the a lot of the math was done just as integers. So that's like a, a weird thing that they have to deal with and simulate and make work all the time.
1: So don't do your accounting on your GameCube
0: emulator. <laughs> Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not.
1: Yeah. Like one, of, one of my favorite stories, and this is kind of tangential, but did you know the Dreamcast was also a Windows box? Really? No, it did not. Yeah, I think it was uh, Windows CE. Oh, of course. Yeah, but it had two modes. It had like a Windows mode and a non-Windows mode. As one might expect, that did not go well for Sega.
0: Oh, what a time, yeah.
1: But the people writing the emulators have to now emulate both environments, which is super interesting.
0: Of course. Well, it looks like they've made a good um a good start here. Don't don't go using this expecting to have a have a great time playing games. But if you're interested in learning C sharp or you know, maybe trying your hand at writing an emulator if you're already experienced in C sharp, well, go check it out.
1: If only there were one in Rust.
0: <laughs> uh, yes. Well, maybe we can dream or you can start working on it, Mike. Yeah. well
1: I, I have all that free
0: time. Yeah. I do have something to placate you. It's not in Rust, so I know, I know, I'm sorry but it is written in Go and it's it's a, a pick from one of our feedback items earlier. Yeah, that's right. Nuclear Nick recommends FCF, which is a fuzzy finder, right, for your terminal. So this goes hand in hand with what we talked about last time, which is just improving your command line experience, better ways to interact with the system. So if you haven't heard of FCF, well, go check it out. It's a general purpose command line fuzzy finder. You pull it up, has a nice little little curses-style interface. You start typing, and it goes out. It's indexed your system and immediately brings you up options of, oh, yeah, well, that text is found in this file. And it's got a nice little interface, too, where you can sort of move between the files, and it's got a preview pane. So I think it works especially well for people listening to this show who might have a lot of uh, text-based source files laying around. Yeah, I'm going to have to start using this. Yeah, I was going to say, do you use any tools like this? Because I know you spend a decent amount of time, you know, playing around in in the terminal.
1: Yeah, I spend a lot of time in terminal. I don't, I mean, Fish Shell helps a little bit, but this is definitely going to be a more robust solution because Fish Shell can do some, you know, more advanced, like, find and search stuff. But this is like taking that and, oh, it's a Vim plugin? Yes! Now I'm just getting excited.
0: Oh, don't you love that? You know, that makes me think, not for today's show, but maybe sometime soon we should talk a little more about uh, editor setups and uh Talk a bit more about Vim plugins and what you like to use. And how I gave up on Emacs again. And how you get Okay, yeah. Well, all right. We're just going to have to slot that in. I think we've packed this show with enough this time. So let's get out of here. But please do join us again for another episode of Coder Radio. We do this show live pretty much every week. Now, if you want to find out what time that is, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar is the easiest way. It's 12 p.m. Pacific, but I don't know what time that is for you. You're going to have to go find out yourself. If you want to find more information about us and the show, well, go to show slash 374 if you'd like to find all the links of the things we talked about today. And, of course, there's also ways to get in touch, easy buttons to subscribe to our RSS feed or find us in any of the podcast apps out there. And last but not least, stay tuned for a new show coming to the Jupiter Broadcasting Network, selfhosted.show. It launches this week. You won't want to miss it. If you want more of Mike and I, well, we're both on Twitter, of course. I'm at West Payne, and Mike, you're at Dumanuku Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you right here next week.